Hi everyone, welcome again to Logical Bible Study, and in this podcast we take a look at the Gospel reading for today's Mass, and we're really diving into the text to see if we can understand the literal sense. What did Jesus mean when he chose these particular words? How can we understand uh, the text of Scripture in a more proper, literal way? So that's our goal in this podcast. And today we're looking at quite a famous passage, but not one that's particularly easy to interpret, at least in some ways it can be quite difficult. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 38. Jesus said to his disciples, I say this to you who are listening, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who treat you badly. To the man who slaps you on one cheek, present the other cheek too. To the man who takes your cloak from you, do not refuse your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and do not ask for your property back from the man who robs you. Treat others as you would like them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what thanks can you expect? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you... What thanks can you expect? For even sinners do that much. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what thanks can you expect? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Instead, love your enemies and do good, and lend without any hope of return. You will have a great reward and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be compassionate as your Father is compassionate. Do not judge, and you will not be judged yourselves. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned yourselves. Grant pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and there will be gifts for you. A full measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap, because the amount you measure out is the amount you will be given back. So this is the Sermon on the Plain, and there's a whole lot you could say about this. This is one of these texts where it could probably mean lots of different things. It could be applied in many different ways. And an exegesis like this really can only scratch the surface. There's some of these words that could be interpreted different ways. And so I think it's one of these passages where, um, although I can give you the basics of what I think is going on, there might also be more to it as well. Um, So it's one of those texts where I don't think we can have 100% confidence on the exact meaning of, or perhaps the extent to which Jesus expected certain things to be applied. But we can have a go at it, and that's our goal in this podcast, is to have a look at the text and see what it probably meant in its original context. And looking at commentaries is really useful, particularly for passages like this, to see what nuances authors have noticed that other authors haven't noticed when they look at this text. So we're in Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain, and it takes up the bulk of uh, Luke chapter 6, and it's obviously very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, and we talked about that in previous episodes um, earlier in the sermon. There's a question about which is the more accurate version, or perhaps they're both collections of Jesus' sayings, but rearranged in different contexts. But certainly, these is things that Jesus did say, and they all relate to the same thing, even if they weren't said on the same occasion. So verse 27, now the lectionary adds in a phrase here right at the start. Jesus said to his disciples, that's not in the original. And it's probably not very good in this case either, because the very next thing 
that Jesus says, Jesus opens his mouth and says this, I say this to you who are listening. So that phrase probably indicates that Jesus is speaking to the whole crowd, not just his disciples. So whenever you're looking at the lectionary, always be aware that sometimes the lectionary adds in a few, like a a phrase at the start to help make the reading a bit clearer, but often that's not in the original and it can be misleading, as I think it is here. It appears that Jesus is speaking to anyone who can hear him at this particular time. Now, Matthew's version, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus here says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Luke doesn't have that background. Jesus just goes straight into saying, love your enemies. The first thing to understand here is what does the word love mean? It doesn't mean to have mushy, lovely feelings. Love basically means to do good or to will the good of the other person. And that's actually what it means in the New Testament. To love someone means to do good things for them, to do good works for them. So when Jesus here says, love your enemies, he basically means do good to your enemies and desire their welfare. Now, that's revolutionary to us. It's probably even more revolutionary to them because in the time of Jesus, the commandment to love your neighbor, now that was an Old Testament commandment, love your neighbor, that's in Leviticus 19 verse 18. But in the time of Jesus, that was largely understood to refer only to those in the covenant family of Israel. So it was Jews understood this commandment to love your neighbor to be only restricted Uh, to other fellow Jews, basically. And of course, that's the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus says, who was neighbor to this person? And it's the non-Jew, basically. Jesus goes on, do good to those who hate you. So who are those who would hate Christian disciples? Well, in context, Jesus is primarily thinking of the Romans. The Romans hated the Jews. Think about this. Jesus is challenging his disciples, and in fact, the crowd in general, to love and pray for the very people who are occupying their land. They tax them heavily and they treat them with violence and injustice. Jesus is probably thinking of the Romans in particular. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, to them, it sounds like love the Romans. And that's think about how radical that would be for them. And especially because the Jews at the time expected the Messiah to overthrow the Romans And some of them, by this point, think Jesus is the Messiah. So now Jesus comes along and says, love the Romans. So this would be completely shocking to them because they were expecting him to overthrow the Romans. So looking at the background here really helps understand the full force of what that would have meant in the original context. Jesus goes on in verse 28, bless those who curse you, pray for those who treat you badly. Now, by the way, most of what Jesus says here still applies to us today. So, although in this podcast we're looking at the literal sense, what it meant in its original context, clearly a lot of the Sermon on the Plain is meant to be what Jesus expects of Christians in general for all time. So, when we hear these words, bless those who curse you, pray for those who treat you badly, it's challenging, isn't it? When it says treat you badly, that's a very mild translation. What it actually says is abuse you, pray for those who abuse you. Jesus himself is the model for this because he prays for those who crucify him. Remember, he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And that's in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And we also know that the early Christians did do these things. They prayed for their enemies and they returned hate with love. We can see that in the book of Acts and in the letters of Peter and Paul. It's a pretty consistent theme. We now get to a part of the sermon that's quite difficult to interpret. 
because it's not clear to the extent to which Jesus is exaggerating and using hyperbole. He could be setting up these kind of mini parables, mini images as examples that are not meant to be taken literally, but sort of over-exaggerating in order to make a point. And we know that he does do that um, in other places in the Sermon on the Mount. What we're going to see here is a series of examples Jesus gives about don't resist when people are doing evil to you. And there's a question here about, is he being literal? Does he really literally expect people to actually turn the other cheek in these situations? Or is he just using that to make a general point? Um, If it's not literal, then maybe Jesus means something like, don't let self-centeredness and your desire for revenge dominate your thinking. Either one of those understandings is acceptable. Um, Most of the tradition would say that Jesus is literally, he does literally mean, don't retaliate. Um, in these situations. And I think that that is the best way of understanding it. However, it's worth pointing out that some scholars think he's just uh, exaggerating and he's just making a general point about don't be self-centered and um, think of yourself in these situations. Rather, think of the Christian command to love. So he's going to give some examples that challenge his disciples to resist the temptation to return one offense for another. So that's key. In all these examples... Uh, the Christian is abused unfairly, and Jesus says, don't retaliate, resist the temptation. The key theme in the examples is that in each case, the person is unjustly persecuted by a wicked person. But Jesus says in each of these cases, endure it anyway. In fact, more than that, return their evil with kindness. This is challenging, even for us, but it is what Jesus asks of Christians. This is what he wants the kingdom to look like. So here's the first example, verse 29. To the man who slaps you on one cheek, present the other cheek too. Now, in that culture, a slap was basically a punch. It's like an assault. Remember when um, Jesus is about, before he's crucified, they slap him or strike him is another translation there. So it's like a heavy blow to the face, basically. Now, under the Jewish law at the time, if someone slapped you, you could demand financial compensation. They actually had the right to get compensation if someone slapped them. But Jesus here says, rather than uh, taking up your right and getting financial compensation if someone hits you, rather, one should endure it further, even, by offering the other cheek. So Jesus here says, rather than retaliating, endure it, in fact, take it even further, suffer um, for the sake of righteousness. So it seems like Jesus does literally mean this, turn the other cheek if you are slapped on the cheek. But you could say that if Jesus is using hyperbole here, which is possible, maybe he just means there's merit in suffering righteously rather than retaliating. Perhaps that's just the point Jesus wants to make. Jesus now gives a second example. To the man who takes your cloak from you, do not refuse your tunic. So in that culture, Jewish men wore two garments. They had a tunic, which was the inner garment, and a cloak, Uh, which was the larger, heavier outer garment. Jesus here says that if someone should take a man's cloak unjustly, so it sounds like they've robbed them or something, then rather than seeking compensation, that person should offer his uh, tunic as well, his inner garment too, even though that's pretty radical because you're offering the last bit of protection that you have. Um, You're giving up even your inner garment, your tunic, and that's um, actually putting your own self and own life in jeopardy. So again, that's the theme of righteous suffering. These are all examples of what 
um, Paul would call conquering evil with good. That's in Romans twelve, chap- uh, Romans chapter twelve, verse twenty-one. Jesus goes on, verse thirty: "Give to everyone who asks you," or that can be translated, "begs from you." So it's thinking of people who are genuinely in need. And the teaching here is: give to everyone who asks from you. Do not withhold things selfishly. So this this constant theme of giving oneself that comes through. Jesus says, and do not ask for your property back from the man who robs you. Now, only Luke adds in this phrase, which is interesting, and it's fairly radical, isn't it? Don't ask for your property back from the man who robs you. So once again, Jesus is calling his disciples to suffer righteously when wickedness is done to them. Even though they have the right to retaliate in all these examples, yes, technically, legally, you can retaliate. Jesus wants his kingdom to be characterized by non-retaliation and uh, showing mercy and love, doing good to your enemies. So all of these examples are about being unconcerned with your own honor and reputation and trusting God to settle accounts instead. Verse 31, now we get to the famous golden rule. Treat others as you would like them to treat you. More literally there, it's as you wish that men would do to you, do so to them. Now notice this is not restricted to neighbors, which is the common Jewish view at the time was treat other Jews, well, here it's all people treat others as you would like them to treat you. In fact, that would even apply when the other person does not reciprocate. This is a commandment on Christians. Regardless of how others are treating you, you treat them as you would like them to treat you. This is often called the golden rule, and you've probably heard people say that it's not particularly revolutionary because it's found in all religions. But that's not necessarily true because even though a form of it is in Um, most religions, it's not usually stated in the positive form. Usually it's stated in the negative form, as in don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Well, here, Jesus makes it positive. Do to others as you want them to do to you. Interestingly, Jesus here is probably thinking of a passage from the Old Testament. Tobit, chapter 4, verse 15, says, never do to anyone else what you would not want them to do to you. And so that's the negative form, which was because that's in the Old Testament, that's what the Jews believed, Jesus now gives it a positive spin. Matthew's version at this point adds in, uh, this is the summary of the law and the prophets. So Jesus sees treating others the same as you want them to treat you. That's a summary of the entire Old Testament. Uh, Luke doesn't include that particular phrase though. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what thanks can you expect? Or what credit is that to you? So Jesus here says there's nothing particularly virtuous about doing good for those who do good to us. There's actually no merit in that at all. That's just natural human instinct. But Jesus says disciples of Christ are called to put in effort to do good to everyone, even those who persecute them. That's what uh, Christianity should look. It should look different uh, from other religions, from the rest of society, because Christians are going out of their way to treat all people Um, with honor, with respect, and doing good to them. Interestingly, the Greek word here for credit, it's actually grace. So you could actually translate this phrase, if you love those that love you, what grace is that for you? So there might be some theological implications here about the way we use grace. Jesus goes on, even sinners love those who love them. So even sinners who are not virtuous people, even they have the ability to love those who love them. So it's easy to do that. The real test of whether you're a Christian, according to Jesus, is can you love those who do not love you in return? Verse 33, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what thanks can you expect? For even sinners do that much. 
And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what thanks can you expect? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So here's one of those economic teachings, the challenging ones. Jesus here says that if someone in genuine need asks you for money or perhaps for goods, then you should lend to them regardless of whether they're your friend or not. You lend to them uh, even if you suspect that you won't get anything in return or, or they won't return the item or the goods to you. Challenging teaching, isn't it? But Jesus says we have to uh, treat everyone the same in that regard across the board. That's Christian behavior. Verse 35, instead, love your enemies and do good and lend without any hope of return or literally expecting nothing in return. That's a summary of what Jesus has been teaching. Love your enemies and do good, lend without any hope of return. So in summary, disciples of Christ are called to be kind, to do good to everyone, even those who persecute them. Often in quite radical ways, they're called to surrender their genuine rights to retaliate and instead to shower people with love and with kindness, without retaliation. Jesus goes on, If you do this, you will have a great reward, and you will be sons of the Most High. So, eternal life is the promise here for Christians who keep these commandments. You'll have a great reward in heaven. Interesting, he says, you'll be sons of the Most High. Notice this is conditional. It's not if you believe in Jesus, you're a son of the Most High. It's if you follow the teachings that Jesus has just laid out about treating others well, then you're sons of the Most High. For God himself is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, or the selfish. Notice the point here. You'll be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. So, Jesus' point here is God gives blessings to all people, not just Christians, not just Jews, So Christians, like good children of their father, if they're going to be genuine children of God, they have to take on the same characteristics of their father and they have to be a blessing to all people. They have to do good to all people, just as God does. Interesting theological point there. God gives good things. He's kind to both the wicked and uh, the faithful. How interesting is that? And so Christians should treat people the exact same way, not discriminate between the wicked and the faithful, at least in terms of um, doing good acts for them. Verse 36, be compassionate as your father is compassionate. More literally there, it's be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Mercy carries this idea of being deeply moved, or compassion certainly does, of being deeply moved in helping those in need. And Jesus here is particularly referring to sinners. Have mercy on sinners. This teaching is going to be amplified in the parable of the Good Samaritan in particular. And again, Jesus' point here is be compassionate, be merciful as your father is compassionate. So a lot of the sermon here conveys the idea that Christians, if they're true sons of the father, they need to act like him so that when people see their good works of Christians, they'll be pointed back to the father. That's the model Jesus is setting up here. This phrase here, be merciful as your father is merciful, it's actually an interesting reformulation of Leviticus 19 verse 2. That commandment basically says, be holy as God is holy. That was the Old Testament model. But holiness in the Old Testament had an element of separating from sinners. That's kind of what was entailed by holiness. Jesus here now transforms it and says, rather than focusing on that, be merciful as God is merciful. 
Jesus has exemplified this mercy in his own ministry, hasn't he? He's eaten with sinners, so he wants his followers to do the same thing. Think about how radical this is. Rather than focusing on holiness and separation, which is what the Jews tended to focus on, Jesus says God's true will, God's first priority, is that we show love and mercy to all people. Verse 37, now we get the famous, do not judge. Do not judge and you will not be judged yourselves. Let's start with the basic meaning of this phrase. It means something like this. The level you judge others with will be the level that God judges you. Right? So notice that. So if you don't want to be judged by God, therefore do not judge others. That's what the phrase means in and of itself. But what does it mean to judge? What does that word mean? Well, I think the next couple of verses make it clear. The kind of judgment Jesus is thinking of here is condemning others and withholding forgiveness when they sin against you. It's, it's in the context of sin, showing mercy to a sinner. Apparently, this was a mistake that people were making in the time of Jesus. People believed they were more holy if they vocally pointed out the faults of others. So Jesus says his disciples are not to be like that. Do not condemn and you'll not be condemned yourself. That's the next thing he says. Why can't people condemn? What's what's Jesus sort of, what's the point here? Why would he say Christians should not condemn? Why can't Christians make these kind of final judgments? The reason is probably that although Christians can evaluate a person's actions in an exterior way, that's a good idea for Christians to do, they cannot judge a person's heart. No one knows a person's hidden intention and struggles. So that seems to be Jesus' motivation here, is even when you can clearly see someone has done something wrong, do not condemn them. You cannot judge them on the interior level. The Jews in Jesus' time, and in fact us today as well, they're prone to make unwarranted generalizations about a person's character on the basis of this or that transgression. This do not judge teaching is a teaching that we should not write someone off because they've committed a certain sin. Rather, we should not condemn them. We can judge the action, but we need to show them mercy. That is the teaching here. Do not write them off. Jesus here is not teaching that Christians cannot make private judgments about a person's actions or ideas. Now, that's often the interpretation you'll hear today, isn't it? If someone brings up, um, you know, a Christian has condemned a certain behavior, the first thing we'll hear is, well, Christians should not judge. That's not exactly what Jesus is saying, though. Jesus is not saying that Christians can't make private judgments about a person's actions. It's clearly not wrong to judge whether an action is sinful according to the law of God. That's actually part of being Christian and part of having a conscience. In fact, Jesus later goes on to give instructions to his Christian leaders about how to deal with public sin. We see that in Matthew 18. Jesus actually lays out the rules for disciplining those who are in public grave sin. So there's a place for that. The focus here is on forgiveness for personal transgressions. If someone has committed a sin, particularly if they ask for forgiveness, you must not withhold mercy. You must show mercy even to sinners. Grant pardon and you will be pardoned. So it makes it pretty clear, right? This do not judge is immediately followed with show mercy and grant pardon. So it's the kind of judgment Jesus has in view here is clearly about forgiveness of sin. That's that's why exegesis is really helpful. Read the context, read the passages around it, and it often sheds some light on it. Now, more literally, this part here in verse 37 says, forgive and you will be forgiven. Notice that we should think about this. Forgiveness is conditional. Often you'll hear that Christians, uh, all Christian sins are forgiven automatically. Well, no, not according to Jesus. Jesus says, forgive and then you will be forgiven. 
Now, how exactly that works on a spiritual level, that's not entirely clear. But Jesus does tell us that our actions in this life can merit before God. And he's going to overlook our offenses if we strive to do the same to others. This actually becomes clearer in the Our Father. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And in Matthew's version, Jesus goes on to amplify it and say, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. Maybe some of his Jewish audience felt that God would forgive any sin automatically because they're his chosen people. Jesus is correcting that view here. He says, God will only forgive you if you treat others well and you forgive them. Last verse is verse 38. Give and there will be gifts for you. Or more literally, it will be given to you. The teaching here is that if we give to others selflessly, God will give good gifts to us. And then he uses this very Jewish phrase, a full measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. Now, what's going on here with with the lap metaphor? Well, in that culture, by folding one's cloak over the belt, a pouch could be formed to carry grain from the marketplace. So this is an economic metaphor. If you've um, something poured into your lap means you've just gotten something, you've just bought something and they're pouring it into like a, a pocket that you've made in your cloak. And here he says it's running over. And the fact that it's running over shows that God, it's God's abundant giving. It's like you've got a massive pile of grain that you've been given. So it's a very Jewish way where Jesus says here, an abundant gift will be given to you by God if you give to others. That's the teaching. And then he finishes by saying, the amount you measure out is the amount you will be given back. So it conveys this idea of pouring out a certain amount and you'll receive the same back in exchange. So God will bless Christians proportionately to how much they give to others. We should keep this in mind. Uh, this is not prosperity gospel sort of stuff, is it? It's a little different. It's to the extent that you live the love commandment, that's the extent to which God will show favor to you. And obviously there's you know a lot more we could say about this in terms of theology, but that, that is what's there on the literal level of today's text. Let's now turn to the catechism and see what uh, Catholic teachings are informed by this passage. Firstly, there's an interesting application, paragraph 1669, about sacramentals. Sacramentals derive from the baptismal priesthood. Every baptized person is called to be a blessing and to bless. And then the paragraph goes on from there. And so the part there that we should pay attention to is every person is called to be a blessing. And it references here the Sermon on the Plain. uh, Jesus says, uh, love others. And in that sense, we're called to bless others too. Interesting link there to sacramentals. Paragraph 1789. This is about how to use your conscience. Some rules apply in every case. One may never do evil so that good may result from it. And the golden rule. Whatever you wish that men would do to you, do so to them. So even here in the catechism, we see that this has to be a guiding principle about ethical decision-making, the golden rule. And then it appears again in paragraph 1970. It says, the golden rule sums up the entire law of the gospel. Whatever you wish that men would do to you, do so to them. This is the law and the prophets. Paragraph 1458 is about confession. It says, without being strictly necessary, confession of everyday faults, venial sins, is nevertheless strongly recommended by the church. Indeed, the regular confession of our venial sins helps us form our conscience, fight against evil tendencies, let ourselves be healed by Christ, and progress in the life of the Spirit. 
by receiving more frequently through this sacrament the gift of the Father's mercy. We are spurred to be merciful as he is merciful. So here the Catholic Church sees this um, a connection with confession here in that when we go to confession and God shows forgiveness to us, we're then um, called to, be, to show forgiveness to others as well as a flow-on effect of confession. Last paragraph, paragraph 2842, this is about forgiving others. This as is not unique in Jesus' teaching. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also must love one another. It is impossible to keep the Lord's commandment by imitating the divine model from outside. There has to be a vital participation coming from the depths of the heart in the holiness and the mercy and the love of our God. Only the spirit by whom we live can make ours the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. Then the unity of forgiveness becomes possible and we find ourselves forgiving one another as in God Christ forgave us. So that's quite a beautiful paragraph. It's a commentary on the Our Father. And it's making the important point there about in order to live these values that Jesus lays out here in this sermon, we need to have an interior transformation. We have to participate in the grace God gives us. So a bit of a longer episode today because it's a longer reading. I hope you found it helpful in your understanding of Luke's text. If you have, please share the podcast around. Consider supporting the ministry financially so it can keep going. Um, It is a small ministry and we need your support in order to grow and do more things. To get more information about how you can help the ministry, please check out the Patreon page in the show notes and there's all sorts of bonus episodes there for you as well. Thanks, we'll see you tomorrow.